0: Let's go be logical Christians. The amazing thing about water is that it can take on any and every shape. If it's a container, water can fill it up and take that shape. The problem with water is that when you take the water out of the container, it doesn't keep that shape anymore. But if you put it in a new container, boom, new shape, just like that. In today's world, that's basically what we've done with um, everything. Everything is fluid. Everything we thought we knew or thought we thought or knew we thought Nothing is solid anymore, and I mean nothing, and new, just horrible containers have been developed to fill up with what we once thought we knew. On today's episode, first we're going to believe how we want to believe, then we're going to learn that just because things are the same, doesn't mean things are the same, and finally we're going to not see racism just everywhere. So, open your Bible, grab a Sharpie, put on your big poofy chef's hat, and get ready for an epic game of peekaboo because. Ah, here we go. Do you know what you believe? I mean, do you really know what you really believe? And probably even more importantly, do you know why you believe what you believe? Your belief should be based on something tangible, real, unchanging, right? And no, apparently that's wrong. Now, to put a boundary on this discussion, I'm not going to discuss religions other than Christianity. Some of the others have texts, some don't. The texts of other religions have contradictions. All are works-based to varying degrees. Many have emotionalism as their base ingredient, and most are somewhat open for interpretation for a variety of reasons. But Christianity is different. The text, regardless of what some may try to claim, it doesn't have contradictions, and it's been proven right over and over again. The problem with Christianity isn't the text or the belief system. It's the people that claim to adhere to it, but make their own decisions as to what they think it says or what they want it to say or not say. Take the Thomas Jefferson Bible, for instance. Jefferson didn't believe in miracles or anything that couldn't be explained through natural processes, so he simply cut out all the passages that didn't fit that requirement, and it resulted in a Swiss cheese Bible that didn't say anything like what the Bible actually says. I mean, sure, it was still full of good morals and good laws and good principles and good stories, but the point and meaning of the Bible was gone inside of Christianity, and let's limit this to Protestant Christianity, we have a number of debates about what the Bible says right now. Calvinism versus Armenianism. what exactly does the term election mean? Young earth versus old earth creation, what exactly does it mean by the word day? Women preachers, teachers, and elders, or not, what exactly did Paul mean? And continuationism versus cessationism, are the miraculous sign gifts still for today, or do they end with the apostles? And the list goes on. But what any Protestant must, I say must admit, unless he or she is being disingenuous, is that there is only one correct interpretation of the Bible. Now, we can bicker and argue about which one it is, but if the views contradict, like all of those I just mentioned, either one is right and one is wrong, or both are wrong, uh, because they can't both be right. It's literally impossible. The problem that we're seeing in all denominations at this point is that there's either a cold war starting to simmer between the ways people are interpreting the Bible, or they're in a full hot war right now. People choosing sides, battle lines drawn, weapons out. The most recent example of this is found in the Methodist Church. Just a few days ago, found on FoxNews.com, headline Nearly one third of churches split from regional Methodist church body amid ongoing schism about sexuality. This happened over the November 19th weekend during a special session of the United Methodist Church North Carolina Conference. In this session, the delegates voted overwhelmingly, 957 to 165, to allow 249 congregations, or about 32% of the total, comprising about 22% of the members in that conference, to leave. The split revolved around one core issue, homosexuality in the church, specifically the ordination of, or marriage by, the church of, quote, self-avowed practicing homosexuals. What I find shocking or frustrating or sad is that the one-third minority of churches that petitioned to leave the conference were considered the conservative churches that actually wanted to follow not only the UMC's Book of Discipline, which forbids the homosexual practices, but more importantly the Bible, which ironically also forbids homosexual practices. Backing up a bit, this issue came to light, or more accurately, to a head in 2019, at what I believe was the last general session of the UMC held prior to and since COVID. This was actually a special session that was called to, per their website, quote, act on a report from the Commission on a Way Forward, authorizing them to examine paragraphs in the Book of Discipline concerning human sexuality and exploring options to strengthen church unity. Well, the exact opposite of this happened. Actually, the vote wound up upholding the ban on ordaining or marrying those identifying as LGBTQ. But the vote was only 438 to 384, an eight percentage point gap, which is fine for an election. But for a church on this topic, that's shockingly non-overwhelming, to say the least. And it's definitely not unifying. During this special conference, because of this clear split, they also adopted a clause active through the end of 2023 that would allow churches to disaffiliate with the United Methodist Church for reasons of conscience relating to homosexuality. This clause modified the standard terms of disaffiliation, which would normally require the church to pay fairly substantial financial penalties to cover their annual apportionments, their pension liabilities, debts, etc., as well as, in most cases, it would require them to turn over their property, tangible and intangible, to the UMC. Now, this temporary modification would lower the amount of money owed and allow the churches to keep their property as they disaffiliate. Now, as the deadline looms, just over one year remaining, churches are taking advantage of this way out of a conference that is rapidly fracturing and turning away from the Bible as written. Now, Since this special 2019 conference, the annual conferences have been postponed, citing COVID restrictions and complications, with the most recent postponement decided on in March of 2022, pushing it out to mid-2024 with the hope that this, quote, will afford greater opportunity for global travel and a higher degree of protection for the health and safety of delegates and attendees. Now, maybe I'm conspiratorial, but I'm thinking less COVID, more avoiding the disintegration of this denomination, or at least officially. I don't think there's anyone that believes the UMC will vote to uphold the Book of Discipline regarding LGBTQ in the next conference meeting, especially with the conservative or traditional Methodist churches leaving. Now, I'm not a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. Technically a member of the ABC USA, the American Baptist Churches USA. Also, the WVBC, the West Virginia Baptist Convention. So far, both of these groups have held strong to their beliefs regarding this topic, as well as others. I've heard rumors that the ABC USA is starting to get a little soft on certain topics, but that remains to be seen. The WVBC, on the other hand, has been very clear on their biblical stance on a variety of topics and shows no signs of compromise, at least not from what I've seen or heard. Truth be told, I'm not really a fan of conventions or conferences. That's probably neither here nor there for this discussion. So why am I worried about what's going on in the UMC? Well, because anytime I can drag another denomination through the mud, why would I not take advantage of that opportunity, right? Right. No, no, that's not right at all. That's not my point. The very clear reality is that this is just a precursor or a harbinger, if you will, of what will be coming to every single Protestant religion and denomination in existence today. There are topics that are popping up and gaining adherence on both sides that will fracture these large denominations, conventions, and conferences. We individually and as local church bodies need to be ready for this. The Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Baptist convention in the world and the largest Protestant convention in the United States, is edging closer and closer to fracturing. Now, I thought this would first be seen in the realm of egalitarianism, the belief that men and women are equal with regard to authority and offices in the church, rather than complementarianism, the belief that men and women share equal importance in the church, but in differing complementary ways, which incidentally is what Paul stated multiple times. But with the departure of Beth Moore from the Baptist faith to the Anglican faith, which has some real biblical problems regarding their belief in baptism, salvation, eternal security, eternity after death, etc. But it allows her positions of authority and power, which is what she really desires. I thought maybe that movement had lost its cheerleader. But don't worry. Rick Warren picked up the slack. And there's plenty of others ready to lead that charge. The reality is... There are a number of divisive issues on the table right now, and the churches and whole denominations are splitting and will split over these issues. So what do you believe, and why do you believe it? The bottom line is that you're free to believe whatever you want, but if it's not in the Bible, don't call it Christianity, for all of our sakes. Same goes for twisting the scriptures or selectively following the scriptures. If you're not all in, why would you bother at all? If you believe Christianity per the Bible to be oppressive and homophobic, why would you want to be called a Christian or even affiliated with Christianity? I mean, is it for the perks? Because uh, uh, uh. with regard to this specific issue, The Bible is clear about homosexuality, as well as sexual sins in general. Romans 1, 24-27 says, "...therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 through 10 says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5:19 through 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. First Timothy 1, 8-11 says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." Now, going back to the Old Testament, we see this twice in Leviticus. For example, Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, the good thing is that salvation is for all, and there is no sin that can't be forgiven. There are a lot of theories as to what the unforgivable sin is, but it's simply to die while rejecting the salvific gift of Jesus. As for any other sin, regardless of what it is, it can be forgiven. We read this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. This says that that entire list of people that were committing a variety of sins that won't inherit the kingdom of God, they were in that church. But if we go just one more verse further than we went before, all the way to verse 11, we see that Paul finishes his thought with, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Some of those in that church were what we would consider to be the worst of the worst. But through the salvation of Jesus, they were washed clean, forgiven, justified, and sanctified. That offer applies to everyone, regardless of their past. But salvation has to requirements requirements—repentance and faith. These individuals that are claiming Christianity, yet living in unrepentant homosexual sin, they're not Christians. They're not saved. By definition, they can't be. The Bible couldn't be any clearer on this. And I've heard various arguments, Oh, this only applies to men, since women aren't named. Or this only applies to adultery, if you have homosexual or any sex with someone you're not married to. I'm telling you, the gymnastics a person has to do in order to twist their way around what is clearly stated in the Bible is impressive, if nothing else. So back to the UMC. Those leaving the denomination aren't willing to throw the Book of Discipline and the Methodist faith away. I've read that some churches are leaving altogether, some are becoming non-denominational, but the vast majority want to stick with the Methodist faith and tradition. To that end, the Global Methodist Church, or GMC, has been formed. This is considered to be the conservative, traditionally Methodist alternative to the UMC. And this isn't just for the United States. This is global and is being heavily pursued by those outside of the United States and generally outside the First World who seem to be competing to see who can be the wokest country of them all. The nations of the world in general do not agree with what's being pushed by a small minority of people in this world. They just want to worship God the way the Bible tells them to, not twist in the wind with every new cause, every new emotional need, every perverse squeaky wheel that wants it their way. Now, there are differences between Baptists and Methodists, and I use Baptist as a comparison because I'm a Baptist, and that's a matter of biblical interpretation, which again, I maintain there is a right and a wrong. So either we're both wrong, or one of us is wrong and the other is right. But what I can say is that traditional Methodism is much closer to what I believe the Bible is telling us than what the UMC is becoming, and the GMC isn't making the compromise the UMC is, which is minimizing the true meaning of salvation and risking the eternity of their members. So let me close out this segment by bringing this all the way back down to you and me. Do you know what you believe? And I know people will debate me on this, but I think as, if not even more importantly, do you know why you believe what you believe? I've been teaching a Sunday night class at my church for a couple of years now. It's a small group based on kind of deep dives into theology. It's a class of why we believe what we believe. I've been given a lot of freedom in this. I'm not beholden to only Baptist materials. And included in this group is the pastor and the head of our deacon, so it's not like I'm allowed to run all willy-nilly. But I've been challenging this group with the why behind the what. And from the youngest to the oldest, everyone, including me, has had to step back at various times and rectify what we believe regarding certain topics with why we believe it. And some have even had to modify beliefs on certain topics because they've gained a deeper understanding of what the Bible says about it Versus what they always thought was true. And this is what we should all be doing. I think for a long, a very long time, at least in the United States, Christianity has had it very easy. From our founding as a generally Christian nation to the granting of religious freedom, it hasn't really been until relatively recently that we've come under any real persecution for our beliefs. And it's only been very recently that we've had full blown infiltration into our core denominations by those that want to reinterpret and rewrite the Bible. So we, who for so long have used the phrases walk by faith and Jesus did it, which are both biblical and correct, must now work to deepen our understanding of the Bible and the world. Additionally, we must hold each other accountable. Iron sharpens iron, right? We must hold our pastors and leaders, our churches, and our conventions and denominations accountable. And I firmly believe that we must be prepared, ready and willing to confront, and it doesn't have to be combative those who want to sneak or wedge or blatantly shove in doctrine and beliefs that the Bible does not say or that it specifically forbids. That may mean a change in pastor. It may mean a change in churches or the disaffiliation from a convention. It may mean being called fill in the blankophobic or hateful or discriminatory. I realize any and all of that gets messy. It's not easy. But if we don't stand for what the Bible says, uh, what are we doing? What are we believing and and why are we even bothering? The battle lines are clearly drawn. Most individuals have already taken individual sides. It's not a matter of if the war comes to where you are. It's a matter of when. So be ready, be prepared, know what you believe and why you believe it. If you go back to my first eh, dozen or so podcast episodes you'll find that there is a stark difference between then and now. The tone, the cadence, the flow, the personality have all changed or evolved over time. Now, this is a good example of microevolution, or a change within the kind. My style then and my style now do differ, but it's still me. It's still using the same software. It's still using the same format. It started as a podcast, and it's currently a podcast. And side note, if you go back and listen to the first handful of podcasts, I mean, just just be kind. I'm, I'm evolving. Now, this kind of microevolution is seen everywhere in industry, technology, education, and nature. If I were to transition my podcast to a video platform, would that be microevolution, a change within the kind? That depends on how you define kind, but no, it really wouldn't. If you're using an audio-only capable podcast player, you would no longer be able to listen. It may still be communication, but it's no longer the same kind of communication. This is also seen in industry, technology, education, but not nature. This would be an example of macro evolution a change from one kind to another. Furthermore, if I were to record into my software, as I'm doing right now, save it, process it, and export it, and it changed spontaneously from audio to a video format... That would be a miracle, or magic, or demonic, depending on if you hear the sound of angels singing, someone saying abracadabra, or the sound of a baby laughing somewhere off in the distance. What it definitely wouldn't be is uh, plausible, possible, or scientific. I can believe that it happens spontaneously on its own, but that's a belief structure. That's a religion, not science, not provable in any way. Enter evolutionary science, and specifically for today the evolution of humans. This is the belief that man came from monkeys, over a long period of time, because that transition happening rapidly is simply silly to think about. And this happened through a series of beneficial mutations, of which none have ever been seen. Ever. Which allowed the mutated to be the fittest and most able to survive, ignoring the fact that minor mutations are generally the first to die in the animal world, for a variety of reasons. Passing these mutations to the next generation, disregarding the fact that in general DNA actually repairs itself in the process of creating new life through the combination of two strands of DNA to create a new unique strand, eventually changing into a new kind of thing, with absolutely no proof of any transitionary forms at all, anywhere, ever, to make this link, except in the textbooks, museums, and ironically named (laughs) science journals. I'll admit, there is one aspect of the scientism of evolution that does amuse me. It's the discoveries that these scientists make on a regular basis that upsets what they've claimed to be fact for many decades, and the scramble to try to shoehorn what they just found into their evolutionary timeline. Equally amusing, yet somewhat frustrating, is the complete lack or willing disregard of common sense and logic with regard to their findings. And today is no different. Found on CNN via MSN.com, headline, Neanderthals cooked meals with pulses 70,000 years ago. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll ignore the 70,000 year ago statement, at least for now. Bottom line, they don't know this. It's based on a massive number of assumptions, all rooted in cyclical logic. In other words, once again, it's a belief system, not actual science. And one point of clarification This may be shocking to some, but I am not a Michelin-starred chef, or a chef at all. I mean, I can cook fairly well, but I am not a sophisticated connoisseur of the culinary arts. I thought that this headline, that they cooked meals with pulses, was an odd way to phrase the fact that they ate the uh, the aminals. No, actually, it turns out pulse is a dry, edible seed of a plant in the legume family, like chickpeas, lentils, dry peas, and beans. Per usapulses.org, I mean, how many hits could that site possibly get in a day? Quote, pulses are an excellent source of protein, fiber, and other key nutrients. Now, why are they called pulses? I don't know. And I'm not eating them, so I'm not going to dig around to find out. Just know that what this article is saying is that Neanderthals ate their veggies, despite all the theories saying they were just brainless meat eaters. So this article starts with, quote, Stone Age cooks were surprisingly sophisticated, combining an array of ingredients and using different techniques to prepare and flavor their meals. Analysis of some of the earliest charred food remains has suggested. Specifically, this study, which was published in your favorite journal and mine, Antiquity, and side note, my personal favorite is the annual antique swimsuit issue. I'll let you decide if that means an antique swimsuit or an antique model in a swimsuit. Anyway, this study focuses on two specific locations, the Schneider Cave in northern Iraq and the Franchthi Cave in Greece. Now, clearly, those were most definitely pronounced incorrectly. So, this was a pre-human, allegedly in the time of the Neanderthals, which were definitely not Homo sapiens, definitely not humans, like, you know, we're humans. We'll come back to this. To the shock of the archaeobotanical scientists, and yes, that's apparently a real thing, they found that Neanderthal cooking was complex, comprised of multiple steps and a diverse range of foods. In addition to the plant and seed matter and the pulses, or pulsi, I'm not sure, they found a, quote, bread-like substance in the Greek cave, but they weren't sure what it was made from. Now, my guess is that they aren't sure because, as we know, the semi-evolved Neanderthal was too stupid to make bread. I mean, the fantasy world these people must live in, right? Looks like bread, but that can't be bread. Doesn't fit the timeline. Now, the Schneider Cave was apparently inhabited by both Neanderthals about 70,000 years ago and Homo sapiens about 40,000 years ago. Not at the same time, and oh, Mother Gaia help you if you think they existed at the same time. The the French, the cave in Greece had food remains from 12,000 years ago, clearly from Homo sapiens. Now, the curious thing is that, quote, despite the distance in time and space, similar plants and cooking techniques were identified at both sites, possibly suggesting a shared culinary tradition, said the study's lead author, Dr. Siren Kabuku, in archaeobotanical scientist at the University of Liverpool in the United Kingdom. Going on with the quote, Based on the food remains researchers analyzed, Neanderthals, the heavy-browed hominins, who disappeared about 40,000 years ago, and Homo sapiens appeared to use similar ingredients and techniques, she added, although wild mustard was only found at the Schneider Cave, dating back to when it was occupied by Homo sapiens. Hmm, tradition. Maybe they both had Betty Rocker cookbooks. hmm? Mrs. Kabuku was also shocked to find that they used multiple ingredients in their cooking. Quote, an indication that flavor was clearly important. I I mean, this is an educated scientist. This is supposed to be a highly logical individual. What do you say to this? The thought that taste might have been important to Neanderthals is a new revelation to her? I mean, just wow. Now, she also had her mind blown because clearly the Stone Age stupid Neanderthals, who couldn't even stay not extinct, were just meat eaters, but no, in fact, quote, it's clear they weren't just chomping on woolly mammoth steaks. Another narrative killer, the fact that, quote, the Stone Age was not just a brutal fight to survive, at least these two sites, and that prehistoric humans selectively foraged a variety of different plants and understood their different flavor profiles. Do you ever wonder if the prehistoric movies were based off of science, or was it the science that was based off of the movies? John McNabb, who was not involved in this research, but was apparently allowed to chime in anyways, a professor at the Center for Archaeology of Human Origins at the University of Southampton in the UK, also owner of super-large business cards, said the scientific understanding of the Neanderthal diet has changed significantly. Quote, As we move away from the idea of them just consuming huge quantities of hunted game meat, More data is needed from Schneider. But if these results are supported, then Neanderthals were eating pulses and some spices from the grass family that required careful preparation before consumption. Sophisticated techniques of food preparation had a much deeper history than previously thought. Okay, so let's back up a bit. Let's start at the time frame of 70,000 or 40,000 or even 12,000 years ago. This is what we like to call pure fantasy. They have no way of knowing these dates. These are dated based on where they were found, the layer of earth that these things were found in, and those layers are dated by what's found in them. Science would like us to believe that they have very sophisticated methods of determining ages. They don't. It's a farce. Even for closer ages, like tens of thousands of years, if they use carbon dating, they have to make a massive number of assumptions in order to get it to work. And when I say work, I mean in order for them to get a number that they believe to be correct. All dating methods are pretty much useless because they don't know many of the data points needed to accurately use the dating method. So they date the findings by the layer of the earth, and the layer of the earth by the findings in it, and if they do use a dating technique, it's unreliable and full of errors and assumptions, and this goes for the Neanderthals dying out 40,000 years ago idea also. The skeletons of those considered to be Neanderthals are found slightly lower in the earth, so clearly there are tens of thousands of years of difference between us and them, because, uh, because science. Now let's turn our focus to the uh, to the Neanderthal. They say that Neanderthals are extinct, but that's not exactly true. First, remember, to claim something is extinct, you must be all places at the same time in order to say there are none of whatever it is you're looking for left. Time and time again, extinct creatures pop up just chillin' somewhere. But let's take for granted that what we'd call a pure Neanderthal doesn't exist anymore anywhere in the world. Fine. But as of the end of 2019, actual, observable, repeatable science determined that all humans have Neanderthal DNA mixed into our own DNA. Just a side note, I'm linking a CNN article for this finding in the notes. The video, or more accurately the still shot for the video, shows what they believe to be a Neanderthal, which is clearly a mostly human but still evolving from ape to man creature. Very hairy, wide ears, almost monkey-like facial features. Uh, Just keep in mind, whenever you see a model, a drawing, or a statue depicting any of the accepted missing links... Remember that what you're seeing is based off of bones. In the case of Nebraska Man, a single tooth, later to be termed the tooth of a type of pig, that's still very much alive today. Some facial features can be determined by bone structure, obviously. But the look in the eyes, the size of the nose, the look of the ears, the lips, the hair, all of that is an artist's rendering. And there's no science to this. Generally, the museum or the school or the archaeologist will tell the artist what they like the illustration to look like, based on where they think this thing fits on the evolutionary scale. The artist generally does a few mock-ups, and when the correct look is chosen, they do the full, contracted work. And you know this is true, because there's no consensus to the looks. Every entity can have any artist depict these things the way they want them to look. Back to Neanderthals were all a little bit Neanderthal. So they didn't really go extinct, they were just bred out of existence as a specific people group. And that in itself should send up some red flags, right? If I take a species of a cat and a species of a dog and try to get them to create a baby, not only will I be bleeding profusely from the clawing and biting, but I'll be very disappointed that I didn't get a cog or a dat or anything at all. If I take an ape and a human and try to get them to mate, I'm pretty sure I'll end up with a dead human in a lawsuit. Different species cannot interbreed. So the fact that we all have Neanderthal DNA means that Neanderthals were humans, just like us. In fact, did you know that if you gather rabbits from around the world, Rabbit A may not be able to breed with Rabbit C, because they're the same kind of animal, but they've speciated too far from each other. But you may get rabbit B that can breed with both A and C. If Neanderthals were truly some missing link, how did they breed with humans? Logically, this doesn't really make sense. But remember, as our illustrious octogenarian dementia patient in the White House said, we choose truth over facts. The truth of evolution is much more important to uphold rather than the facts of actual scientific discovery. Now, let's continue down the road of Using our God-given logic and reason, shall we? If you place a Neanderthal skeleton next to a Homo sapien skeleton, what you'll see is a slightly different human skeleton. The ribcage is more flared at the bottom, the skull doesn't stand up as tall, the bones are generally thicker, the joints were more stout, the overall height is shorter, but this is unmistakably human. If you place an ape or a orangutan or any form of primate skeleton next to the Neanderthal, it's clear that these are not the same kind of being. Now, if you were to put the skeleton of a midget or a dwarf or a little person, whatever, next to an average-sized human skeleton, you'd see many of the same kinds of differences that we get to see between the Neanderthal and the Homo sapien skeletons. But I sure hope that evolutionary scientists aren't going to try to claim that little people aren't Homo sapiens, you know, that they're less evolved. The Neanderthal was simply a human, a different people group, one that was shorter and stockier, but just human, like all other humans. And finally, let's address the idea of cavemen for a quick moment, and then we'll tie all this up with a nice, pretty antique bow. So, were there cavemen? Well, of course there were cavemen. We have cavemen today. Ever since man was given the chance to pursue opportunities outside of the Garden of Eden, People likely lived in caves. Maybe not immediately, but for most of human history, the real history, people have lived in caves. Caves, as long as there aren't bears or spiders, are good places to live, because if you have no other shelter, they can be quite serviceable for a time. But does that mean that people who lived or live in caves are stupid or less evolved? Yeah, There's no way to make that logical leap. A cave-dwelling individual may be very wise, whereas... uh, You ever been to Walmart? Most of those people live in houses if they can figure out how to get the door open. I love it when science discovers something that becomes a revelation to them while the rest of us are just wiping Cheeto dust off our fingers onto our shirts saying, no. It's also interesting how evolutionary science is nearly always directly opposite to the creation account that's recorded for us in the Bible. They say stars, then planets. We say planets, then stars. They say death before man. We say death because of man. And in this case, they say meat before plants. Well, our Bible tells us plants, then meat. The Bible is very clear that man was created distinct from the animals. Now, I I was actually recently giving a crash course in evolution versus young earth creation, and one of the eye-openers was that the Hebrew word for day, yom, is used over 2,300 times in the Old Testament. In all but six cases, there is no debate as to the meaning of yom based on the context of its use. But when it comes to Genesis 1, the six times it's used there is debated by everyone, And the kicker is that they are the uses that are the most heavily defined. They use the definite article V. They're given a number like first, second, and so on. They're bounded by evening, and they're bounded by morning. They can't be any more defined as a 24-hour typical day. So God made birds and fish before, then animals, then man, distinct creations, not an evolutionary chain of events. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. See, we all started as vegetarians. Admittedly to my horror. Now, after sin got us kicked out of the garden, everything started falling apart. We get our first murder, and likely sometime after that, man started eating animals. By the time of the global flood, it is highly unlikely that man was not eating animal meat on a regular basis, but apparently not Noah or his family. As we learn in Genesis 9, "...the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered." Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. This is where Noah, his family, and all of us were now allowed by God, by the Creator, to eat the flesh of animals. We also know that six generations after Cain, I'm not sure how many years, but definitely no more than a thousand years after our creation, we had, among others, Jubal, the father of all those who play the lyre in the pipe and tubalcane, the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Bottom line, humans were not evolved from apes discovering fire, relegated to crude stone tools, discovering the wheel and discovering that plants could be eaten or meat could be cooked, or that flavors were a good thing. Humans were created distinct and smart and capable. The reason that Neanderthals lived in the same area as Homo sapiens, the reason that cooking techniques 12,000 years ago look to be the same as those 70,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, is because those times are fantasy. The evolutionary timeline is a fairy tale, and the cooking techniques were similar because after the flood, at the time of the confusion of languages at the Tower of Babel, man spread out from what is now central Iraq to various locations around Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and eventually the world, taking the knowledge they had already garnered with them. You know, it's a peaceful feeling to have a solid, unchanging, historical account to work from. The Christian who rightly believes in the only correct account of a young earth, of a six-day creation, doesn't have to scramble to update the timeline and move events around and twist the narrative to fit in various discoveries. We can simply look at what to the world are mind-blowing revelations and say that, uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, I could have told you that. The Bible gives us a basis in true truth. It doesn't describe everything to the smallest detail, but it does give us everything we need in order to make sense of the world around us. And isn't that what man is striving to do in pretty much everything? Just make sense of what we see in this world. So maybe you can help me out here. I've got a quandary. I'm embroiled in a conundrum. I'm ensconced in an enigma. Okay, clearly I don't know how to use those words. And that, my friends, is the problem I'm having these days. I don't know what words mean anymore. I mean, I used to know what words meant, but words don't mean those things anymore, except when they do. But that's only sometimes if ever at all. Think about it. Now, I'm not talking about words like cool. That used to be an indicator of the lack of warmth. Now it means hip, which used to mean the thing I'll likely break the next time I fall down, but but now means radical, which used to mean something that has greatly departed from the norm. But now that means awesome, which used to be a term related to God, you know, the one of the Bible. But, but now that means cool. Now, I'm not talking about those. Those are terms that have been co-opted for use as slang terms. I'm talking about the literal definitions of very serious terms. Gender. This used to refer to the only two created, scientifically provable sexes, male and female. Now, gender is based on feeling. Whatever you want to feel, that's your gender. And it's your prerogative to throw letters and sounds together to create your own pronouns for your own feeling at the time vaccine prior to 2021, per the Internet Archive, this was defined in Webster's Dictionary as, quote, a preparation of killed microorganisms, living attenuated organisms or living fully virulent organisms that is administered to produce or artificially increase immunity to a particular disease. But after the covid newly defined vaccine was developed, the term genetic therapeutic apparently didn't test as well. So the term vaccine was redefined as, one, a preparation that is administered as by an injection to stimulate the body's immune response against a specific infectious agent or disease, such as A, an antigenic preparation of a typically inactivated or attenuated pathogenic agent, such as a bacterium or virus, or one of its components or products, such as a protein or toxin. B, a preparation of genetic material, such as a strand of synthesized messenger RNA that is used by the cells of the body to produce an antigenetic substance, such as a fragment of a virus spike protein. Or number two, a preparation or immunotherapy that is used to stimulate the body's immune response against non-infectious substances, agents, or diseases. Oh, got it? Along the same lines as that, misinformation, this used to mean incorrect information or lies. Now it means anything that goes against the accepted narrative of either those in charge or those screeching the loudest. Truth, staying in this same general category, this used to mean something that was verifiable, something that never changed. Now it's defined as a personal viewpoint on a subject, typically based on feelings at the time and conjecture. And that brings us to the one I'm having my brain repeatedly cramped on today. Racist. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't this used to mean something about an individual hating another individual because they were a different ethnic group, a different skin color, something like that? I mean, it's a stupid term, as all humans are the same race, the the human one. But taking it at face value, isn't that what it used to mean? And yes, I know that the definition has been obliterated over the years, especially the last handful, but I think we're set for another definition change here. I've got two articles that I want to touch on. They're both short-ish, but they're both along the same lines, and they both call into question either the IQ or the motive, or both, of a large number of people across the world, or at least what's termed the first world, which, wow, that's kind of heading for a redefinition of its own, isn't it? So, first found on metro.co.uk via msn.com, Mel B, shocked by racism in America while filming BBC series, quote, it changed my outlook. Now, I know I don't need to tell you, but Mel B is, was, is a member of the Spice Girls, which I know I don't have to tell you, but the Spice Girls was a five-member strong pop girl group from the UK that was cobbled together by some producer or promoter or something for the purpose of making money. They ran from about 94 to 2001, then they reunited in 2008, again in 2012, and again in 2018, and they're apparently back out on tour, or were, I don't know, I don't really care. You may remember them from uh, their hits, such as Wannabe. No, I'm just kidding, they did have a few top ten hits, but but let's be honest, at this point in time, people generally know of the Spice Girls, but they don't know the Spice Girls, and for good reason. They're a generally lost-in-the-mix, forgettable group. Like I said, they were designed and created to make some quick cash, and I have no doubt that they fulfilled their purpose. The members, of course, have gone their separate ways, until recently, with varying degrees of success. Mel B., also known as Scary Spice, which To be honest, Sporty Spice was the scariest one of the whole spice rack to me. She was the black one. Now, some may say that's racist. I don't think it is. It's what I used to call a description. In fact, the easiest description because she's the only black one in the group. Now, maybe you want me to call her an African-American. Okay, well, I don't know if she's of African birth or descent, and she's from the UK, so she may be offended by that, as she's apparently very easily offended. And truth be told, she's not really black at all. She's a nice medium brown color. But for our purposes, she's the black member of the group, which is no more racist than if I said Baby Spice was the blonde or that Ginger Spice was the redhead, as they too are the only ones sporting those hair colors. And then there's Victoria Beckham, arguably the most well known today, who was posh spice, who was supposed to be the hot James Bondish girl. I don't know, whatever. Back to our article. Apparently Mel B came over to the U.S., specifically to Colorado, to film a three episode BBC series following the footsteps of Isabella Bird entitled For Trailblazers, a Rocky Mountain Road Trip. Now, Isabella Byrd was apparently a rather infirm woman who decided to travel the world and write books. No, I'm sure her story is much deeper than that. I'll put a link to her Wikipedia page if you want to delve deeper. That's not why we're here today. In the early 1870s, she, as part of her travels, came to America, to the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, as she had been told that the mountain air was good for treating malaise, and rode on her horse for 800 miles, documenting her travels. She sounded like she was a tough old bird. (laughs) Pun, pun, pun. And she's apparently one of Mel B's biggest heroines. So Mel B, along with comedians 69-year-old Ruby Wax and 32-year-old Emily Attack, decided to cover the same path that Isabella Bird covered. In this interview, the opening sentence states, quote, Mel B. has admitted how, quote, shocked she felt traveling to America and encountering racism there in today's day and age, emphasizing that it's, quote, still there. Apparently, she also stated that this personal experience changed her outlook in a few ways. OK, so what was the racism that shocked Mel B. about her time in Colorado? Well, let me uh, let me caution you. Uh, you're you're going to want to sit down for this. Now, usher the kids out of the room either turn the volume down or put in some earbuds, pull the car to the side of the road. She was shocked by how few people of color she encountered in Colorado. And there it is, racism. If blacks aren't forced to live in a state they don't want to live in in order to artificially create demographics up to Mel B's standards, that is literally racism. She stated, quote, so even though Colorado is massive, the whole world is massive, but when it actually comes down to it, where people of color, whether it be mixed or brown or some kind of mix of ethnicity, they kind of have it even harder, people of color. Yeah. Yeah, I think you heard her correctly. She, she just came out, fearlessly, mind you, and just said it. Now, personally, I think this is way too important just to gloss over. I think we need to hear that quote one more time. Quote, so even though Colorado is massive, the whole world is massive, but when it actually comes down to it, where people of color, whether it be mixed or brown or some kind of mix of ethnicity, they kind of have it even harder, people of color. Mm. Kind of gets you right in the feels, doesn't it? And if uh, if you can tell me what she said, I'll give you a shiny new dollar. She did go on to clarify, though, the trio of women, if I'm allowed to use that term anymore, encountered two sisters, champions in lasso, who had to, quote, fight harder for their positions being women of color. So champions, champions in lasso, and they had to fight harder. In what way, Scary? What, what way did they have to fight harder? Harder than just having it handed to them? Or, or were they literally discriminated against? Were they given smaller lassos or harder objects to lasso? Maybe they had to ride on old broken down horses that are off to the side reserved for the blacks. Unfortunately, Mel doesn't go into detail here. Let me reiterate. Champions of, of, of lasso. So, uh, hashtag racism. Now, the article goes on to say that, quote, the Spice Girl speculated, <laughs> speculated that when Isabella set out on her travels, she may not have, quote, stumbled across many people of color based on the journey Mel, Ruby, and Emily went on themselves. Quote, we had to seek them out, Mel added, quote, but who knows? That's the one thing we didn't really ask that I didn't ask. Uh. Okay, so, so see, in the 1870s, this woman may not, speculation, have encountered many black people, but, but who knows? Mel didn't ask. Now, I'm not sure exactly what she didn't ask, but whatever it was, it seems to me to be the key to her shocked feelings. And maybe she should have asked somebody, but no, no, she's, she's shocked. So shocked, it appears that she's unable to string words together to form coherent sentences. And that too is quite obviously racist. So the racism that shocked her, just to recap, is that 150 years ago, one of her heroines, an explorer, may not have encountered many black people. And she, Mel, didn't encounter many black or racially mixed people on her journey, and two black champion champion Lasso sisters had to work hard to become champions. Well, I looked up the racial demographics of Colorado, just for fun, right? As of 2021, there are about 5.8 million people in Colorado, about 3.8 million or 65.2% are white, about 2 million or 34.8% are non-white. The United States, as a comparison, as of 2020 was about 57.8% white, 42.2% non-white, so sure... Sure, Colorado is a little more white than the national average. Now, Scary Mel isn't from the U.S. She's from the U.K., and clearly, because of her experience, we're racist because we apparently hide all those non-whites from foreigners because we we just don't want people to get scared or something. I'm not sure. So the implication from her statement, knowing the numbers I just gave you, is that the U.K. must be a perfect mix or even heavily non-white. Well, as of 2016, it appears that the UK is about uh, uh, 86.3% white, 13.7% non-white. See, by her standards, that means that her home country should shock her nearly three times as much as Colorado did, as they are nearly three times more racist. I bet she's not shocked, though. She likely lives in a larger city with a higher non-white demographic, or at least a higher non-white demographic than trails in the Rocky Mountains have. Maybe whatever it is that Mel Spice didn't ask, maybe she should have asked it. I'm not sure. Oh, one other sidebar on this story, a little factoid, a little nugget, if you will. The two comedians that Mel B traveled with, one of them is white and the other one is uh, is also white. So two-thirds of Mel B's posse was white. One-third was non-white. Pretty much identical to the demographics of uh, Colorado. So uh, So who's the racist now, Mel? Okay, so new definition of racism, number one. I don't see many non-white people from where I'm standing, ergo racism. Okay, we got it. Now, story number two has been playing out for a little while, but we finally have some resolution on it, and it's about darn time. That's all I've got to say. Found on Politico, also via MSN.com, headline, WHO to rename Monkeypox as Mpox. <laughs> it's about time. Now, as we all know, monkeypox threatened to be the next massive pandemic to sweep through and kill every single American again. I mean, we were just all killed a few years ago, now we're all going to be killed again. Or at least, that's what the morons in charge of our entire medical systems would have had us believe. Turns out, As long as you weren't a gay male having gay male relations with other gay males, and even if you were, as long as you weren't covered in gooey sores or scabs from recently gooey sores, things would be mostly fine. Turns out some men prefer other men with gooey sores, thus the short-lived propagation of this virus. Thankfully, they've got a vaccine for that, because what our government absolutely would not recommend is that men stop diddling other men for a few weeks. Let this kind of die out. Then you can go back to diddling till your heart's content. But the pandemic that wasn't, in fact, the epidemic that never was, that they desperately wanted to use to instill yet more fear and control on the American people, wasn't really the largest problem. The problem was the name of the virus itself and the fact that it was named after a racial slur toward black African people of color. The word was monkeys. This virus was literally called monkeypox, pox! And as we all know, the word monkey is only always used to describe black people, and that's racist. It might as well have been called N-word pox. Thankfully, the US and Mumbly Joe has finally put enough pressure on the WHO, the the Who, the organization, not not the band, to get the racist name changed. In fact, The Biden administration actually threatened the WHO, saying that if they didn't do something, the U.S. would just change the name themselves. I think they added a yeah to the threat as well, but I'm not positive on that. Now, per the Politico article, quote, the Biden administration for months worried that the virus's name was deepening stigma especially among people of color, and that the slow movement toward a new designation was hampering the vaccination campaign. It started over the summer, the people with knowledge of the matter said. So over the summer... The Who agreed to consider suggestions for a name change. And finally, after extensive and probably very costly work, they've come up with the best of the best, spending long hours deep into the night, laboriously poring over data, demographics, dictionaries, probably the urban dictionary, data from focus groups, suggestions from around the world, sleep-deprived, starving, having not used the bathroom for weeks, nay, nay, months on end— I'm assuming a few of these admittedly they finally came out of their locked chambers holding the answer the new name it will now henceforth be known as mpox mpox now, let me ask you this what is kfc yeah, yeah, you you immediately thought it, right? It's Kentucky Fried Chicken. Why is it known as KFC today? Well, because they wanted to get rid of fried in the name to remove the unhealthy connotations. We all know what KFC is. So the who is changing this to mpox and that's the result of a season-long campaign to determine the best new name for monkeypox because monkeypox is racist because it has the word monkey and as we all know, a slur for black people is monkey. So Mpox. So, monkey. Po- uh, I get it. I'll get it. Mpox, which maybe we're supposed to say it like the band Hansen. I'm not sure. Mpox. Badoobadop. Badoo. Dop. Badoobadop. badu Badoo. Yeah. Mpox. And then repeat. I don't know. However, we're supposed to say it. Mpox was first discovered in 1958 in Copenhagen, Denmark, in a lab on monkeys. Like literal, real, man-in-the-yellow-hat monkeys. That's where the name came from. Now, it is true that the term monkey has been used in the past as a racial slur, but um, but so what about that? That's not how it was named or used, and despite the Biden administration's fear that people aren't getting vaccines because everything is racist, literally nobody thought of monkeypox as being a racial thing. Well, I don't know, I say nobody, but no, clearly some people were thinking this. In fact, it was those on the left of the political spectrum that thought this. Oh, a shock of shocks. Are they also anti-zoo? Are they threatening zoos to change the name on the glass and the cages of certain small cheaping animals? That's not the monkey cage, kids. That's the mmm cage. If this was literally being used as a racist slur, wouldn't the correct name change be people of color pox or those of African descent pox? So back to our definition of racist, Uh, number one, I don't see many non-white people from where I'm standing, ergo racism. And now number two, if when I see a word, I instantly think of a slur for people of color, that's racist. What's definitely not racist is the fact that these people, Biden and his Marxist woke activist horde, see race in absolutely everything all the time. That's not racist at all. Oh, wait, wait. That is literally racism. The fact is that those who see race or skin color or ethnic background in everything and everyone, they are literally the racists. Biden is a documented racist who had a massive amount of respect for huge self avowed racists. He's made joke after joke, quip after quip, that by today's standards are racist. They were really just stupid attempts at jokes for the most part, but we aren't allowed to use humor these days. So, uh, racist. And where did this monkey racist slur originate? Oh, well, our old friend evolution. Evolution, sadly accepted by a large number of Christians and conservatives, is heavily viewed as indisputable fact by those on the left. Charles Darwin, who is generally considered the father of evolutionary theory, said in his book The Descent of Man, quote, At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes, as Professor Schaffhausen has remarked, will no doubt be exterminated. The break will then be rendered wider, for it will intervene between man in a more civilized state, as we may hope, than the Caucasian, and some ape as low as a baboon, instead of as at present between the Negro, or Australian, and the gorilla. Okay, what was he saying here? Well, he set up the basic evolutionary path from monkey to man. That path was from baboon to ape to the savage, which was the Negro or Australian Aborigine, uh, to the white man. If we came from monkeys, that meant that blacks were less evolved than whites and closer to the ape kind. Darwin speculated that eventually we'd just do away with all the savages. We'd exterminate the blacks, which Planned Parenthood is doing their best to get done and probably kill off all the apes as well, since they look too much like humans, and, and so then the, the evolutionary gap would be wider than it was in his day. Now, instead of being between monkeys and apes, apes and blacks, blacks and whites, it would be monkeys and whites, and we'd have a much more distinct, advanced, evolved race of human. The idea that blacks are less human, more ape, was a godless evolutionary fairy tale, widely adopted by the left. Now, the left won't say this out loud, but this is what they believe. And this is why they've always been and will always be racists. If you're on the left, you are a racist. If you're not a racist, what are you doing voting for them? This theory was also adopted by Hitler. He was a racist, a Darwinist, and a big fan of how America was ridding itself of the Negro, the unclean, the criminal, the retarded, the disabled, the sexually deviant, etc. through the process of eugenics. Look it up. You've never heard about eugenics before. Most likely, E-U-G-E-N-I-C-S, eugenics. Hitler liked the ability to sterilize or exterminate those that he didn't consider to be evolved as much. So he adopted what the United States was doing, and then he ramped it way up. And per his view, he was just eliminating animals. Less evolved. No big deal. In fact, he had a chart. The Nordic. The blonde-haired. The blue-eye. They were close to pure Aryan. The Germanic. Brown-hair. Blue or possibly brown eyes. They were predominantly Aryan. The Mediterranean person, they were slightly Aryan. The Slavic was half Aryan, half ape. The Oriental was slight ape preponderance. The Black African was predominantly ape. And the Jewish were close to pure ape. (laughs) See, when we step out of the truth, step out of the truth of the Bible... That God created everything, that God created man and woman, all of this in six days, that man and woman had kids upon kids upon kids, that the sin of man corrupted the world to the point that the hearts of man was only evil continually, so God wiped out everyone except eight people, and from those eight people, or more accurately, six people, we get every person, every skin color, every facial feature, every hair type, every shape, every size, every form of human that's lived over the last 4,500 years, meaning there aren't many races there is one race meaning that it doesn't matter what skin color mel b sees in colorado it matters how we all treated each other us to her her to us it means that the old slur of monkey is nonsense because a black man is no more related to a monkey than a white man and the only relation we have is that we were all created by a common designer And when you're grounded in the truth, you're not basing your world in thoughtless emotionalism, causing you to see everything through a racial lens, which makes you the literal racist. You're basing your worldview on actual, literal truth. The only two races of human in this world are saved and unsaved. Beyond that, physical differences are nothing but the glory of God's blessing on design. But no, 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 all of that is myth and fairy tale, and we definitely know that tacked on to the definition of racism are now, if I don't see enough non-whites from where I'm standing, and if I see any sort of word that can be used as a racial slur, used in any form or context, those are racist things. So I'll just ask you to to keep that in mind. And that is all. Carry on. Non-raciously, of course. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard greatly appreciate a like a comment and a review if you're so inclined as you likely already know it all helps with the algorithms don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops and finally if you found this podcast useful or entertaining share it with your friends your enemies your in-laws your outlaws if you want to reach me you can do so at lc at or increasingly i'll be using at lc podcast on getter Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.